Krishna Prasaya Bhutale Srimati Bhakti Vedanta Swamini Tinamane Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravadi Pacharane Nirvasesa Sandivadi Paskachade Satarane Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Uta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamcha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Vitams Tam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Manchakapa Tribhyascha Kripasandu Bhyevacha Patitanam Pavanevyo Vaishnavevyo Namonamaha So this is July 6, 2015, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii. And we're going to be speaking on Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 4, Text 31. Nodavon Vapimam Nuno Yad Gunar Nardita Prabhu Atomad Vayunam Lokam Grahayani Hatishtatu Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Um, we're hearing a lot of noise on the line. Uddhava is not inferior to me in any way because he is never affected by the modes of material nature. Therefore, he may remain in this world in order to disseminate specific knowledge of the personality of Godhead. Purport. The specific qualification for becoming the representative of the Lord is to be unaffected by the material modes of nature. The highest qualification of a person in the material world is to be a brahmana. But since a brahmana is in the mode of goodness, to be a brahmana is not sufficient for becoming a representative of the Lord. One has to transcend the mode of goodness also and be situated in unalloyed goodness, unaffected by any of the qualities of material nature. This stage of transcendental qualification is called Shuddha-sattva, or Vasudeva, and in this stage the science of God can be realized. As the Lord is not affected by the modes of material nature, so a pure devotee of the Lord is also not affected by the modes of nature. That is the primary qualification for being one with the Lord. A person who is able to attain this transcendental qualification is called Jivan Mukta, or liberated, even though he is apparently in material conditions. This liberation is achieved by one who constantly engages in the transcendental loving service of the Lord. In Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu 12187, it is stated, Anyone who, by his actions, mind, and words, lives only for the transcendental loving service of the Lord, is certainly a liberated soul, even though he may appear to be in a condition of material existence. Uddhava was in such a transcendental position, and thus he was selected to be the factual representative of the Lord in his bodily absence from the vision of the world. 
Such a devotee of the Lord is never affected by material strength, intelligence, or even renunciation. Such a devotee of the Lord can withstand all onslaughts of material nature, and therefore he is known as a Goswami. Only such Goswamis can penetrate the mysteries of the Lord's transcendental loving relationships. Nodhavon Vapiman Vyuno Yad Gunar Naradita Prabhu Atomad Vayunam Lokam Grahayam I Hatishtatu. Uddhava is not inferior to me in any way because he is never affected by the modes of material nature. Therefore, he may remain in this world in order to disseminate specific knowledge of the personality of Godhead. So here Krishna is discussing about who, can, who is fit to represent him in his absence. Of course, in one sense, Krishna is never absent, but in the sense of Krishna being incarnated in the world, Janma Karma Chame Divyam, Krishna is about to be absent and he's feeling that, okay, who's going to be representing me? Who's going to be doing my business in the world? And such a person is Uddhava. So there are many people who want to represent God in the world, who want to say, all right, I, I have the uh, potency, the power of God. What I say, what I do is on behalf of God. And there are we could say two main categories of course there's subtleties and individualities two main categories of people who want to represent God and one is people who want to represent God because they have figured out that if you want to be happy in the world and you want to be a controller in the world you have to be on the winning side you have to be on the side of the boss Something like when I was in school, I figured out that if I followed the rules and I got good grades, that then I'd have a lot more freedom. The teachers would pretty much let me do what I want. I I had one class in high school where I went to the teacher and said, I already know this stuff. And she said, well, if you come in, I think it was once a week or once every two weeks, and if you get an A on the exams, then you don't have to come to the rest of the classes. She said, you can just turn in a paper every two weeks on any topic of your choice. And you get privileges. So a lot of people become religious for this purpose. Most, not all, but most of the demigods are in this category. They want the power of God, they want to represent God, so that they themselves get legitimate power. And so this is in opposition to grossly materialist persons who want the power and the opulence of God by stealing it from him. You know, <laughs> you want the power of, of, of enjoyment and you want the power of control on your own effort. So more intelligent persons figure out if I want to get sense gratification, you know, if I want to get material opulence, if I want to have power, if I want to have influence, then I have to work for the universal government. And I think we'd say, frankly, that the majority, probably the vast majority, of people who represent God are in that category. Now, it's interesting that when you represent God in that way, you do get some of the powers of God. I mean, the demigods do have some of the powers of God. They're controlling the rain, they're controlling the wind, they're experiencing things through the senses of the living entities on the earth, Lord Brahma says, And even on this earth, there's many people 
who have had powers given by God and who speak on behalf of God and, and do good works on behalf of God. But at the same time, uh, they're not really, as Prabhupada says here in the purport, one with God. He says here, that is the primary qualification for being one with the Lord. And of course, we don't mean one with the Lord in the sense of losing one's individuality, but we mean one with the Lord in terms of complete harmony of heart, harmony of desires. And as Prabhupada says at the end, very end of this purport, to penetrate the mysteries of the Lord's transcendental loving relationships. So those who, in a very real and bona fide way, represent God in terms of having his power externally do not really fully represent God because they're not fully one with him. Those who want the power of God just to facilitate their own enjoyment in the world, they can get it. It's not that they can't get it. Uh, But their heart doesn't change. They haven't really transcended the modes of material nature. And gradually what seems to happen to these people is the dirt in their heart becomes revealed. As the, it's, it's shown, just like we see these stories of Indra, where his lust, his greed, etc., becomes revealed. And we see this with many of the stories of the demigods in the Bhagavatam. Even, as Prabhupada says here, the highest is to be a Brahmin. So even many of these Brahmanas, Durvasamuni, uh, Brihaspati, they're great brahmanas who are primarily in the mode of goodness, and they definitely represent God, uh, the personality of Godhead in the world. And they have many of the powers of the personality of Godhead. But their hearts are still impure, and those impurities become revealed. So uh, the problem with being a representative of God in that way is it's, it's not deep. It's very temporary, because as soon as these impurities are revealed one falls from their position. Uh, one no longer can claim to be a representative of God. And, and, and again, we see this not only in the demigods, which many stories, but we see it on earth over and over again, and we see it in every religious system and in every religious organization. There are people who are invested with the shakti of God, they're the representatives, they're representing God, they're doing the work of God in in the world, they're combating evil and they're establishing righteousness and and so forth. Uh, And then their evil becomes revealed and they lose that position. But then we see another kind of representative of the personality of Godhead. And that's a representative of the personality of Godhead who has the influence of the modes of material nature broken. They have uh, cut through the knot as explained in the first canto, Aridaya Granta, they cut through the knot in the heart, the false ego is, is broken and dismantled, and they are truly one with the Lord internally. They are in, in harmony and in a loving relationship with the Lord internally. And the, the evil is, is actually removed from their heart. They've been factually reinstated. They don't just have the the clothing of the Lord, so to speak, but they have the the heart of the Lord. And although those who have the mantle or the clothing of the Lord, they they do the work of the Lord in this world. Undoubtedly, they do. There's no question about it that they do. The The real work, the deep work of establishing our loving relationship 
with Krishna is only done by the representatives who are above the modes of material nature. And if we want this sort of deep harmony with the Lord, if we want to be genuine, a genuine spiritual person, it's, it's, uh, it's a different process to be an external spiritual person who, who does genuine work of, of, of Krishna in the world. And to be a genuine spiritual person who's not only doing Krishna's work in the world, but who is experiencing enlightenment and, and transcendental bliss, as Sanjaya says, with a thrill at every moment. So I thought we'd look at the main criteria that Prabhupada says here. What does he call it? The primary... Um, let's see if we can find it again. The, purport, the primary qualification for being one with the Lord and for becoming Jivan Mukta, to become liberated. So again, we see a little different motivation that those who want the mantle, the clothing, the external power of the Lord... They're not interested in liberation from material life. They're interested in enjoying the material world, or they're interested in impersonal liberation. But those who want to really be free, as Prabhupada says, the need of the soul is freedom. They have to become a one with the Lord. Again, not in terms of merging, but in terms of, of heart and harmony, genuinely, in internally. All right, so if the primary qualification for this being a genuine representative of the Lord is freedom from the modes of material nature, so we're going to look at, at, usually I try to look at just two or three, maybe four categories, but we're looking at a few more, so it's, it's going to require a, a little more um, <laughs> attention, I suppose. So we're going to look at what are these modes of nature. I mean, that's not uh, explained so much here. In the verse, we just have gunai by the modes of material nature. What are these modes, and why are we being controlled by them? Why? Yes? Okay, is this better? Okay. Okay, so we want to know what are the modes? Why are we under them? Uh, We've already talked about why we should transcend them. What are the symptoms of transcendence? How do we transcend them? And then we're going to look a little bit uh, at Uddhava's additional qualifications that are explained by Jiva Goswami. So what are these modes of material nature? We could, in in a general way, the modes of material nature are what happen when the energy of time, which is also Lord Shiva, touches the pradhan. So as soon as the Lord's glance, which is the energy of time, which is the energy of Lord Shiva, of destruction, which is the energy of ahankara, false ego, touches the undifferentiated material nature, they split into these modes. And these modes are ways of of filtering, understanding, enjoying, manipulating uh, the ahankara. Because our desire to be the Lord of the world is not uniform. In other words, each living entity has different tastes, different flavors of how they want to enjoy the world. And these modes allow a living entity to enjoy the world in various ways. 
So just very briefly, these things are explained in the Bhagavad Gita in much greater depth. There's the three modes, ignorance, passion, and goodness. So in ignorance, one's consciousness, one's awareness of Krishna and of oneself is almost totally absent. It's as if there's no God and there's no soul. I basically just think that I am this body and satisfaction for the senses and mind of this body is all there is. So my knowledge is just of the work that I do in order to satisfy my body and senses. And of course, the most gross manifestation of this it would be you know, animals and plants and insects and fish and, and who have just no concept of spirituality whatsoever. But even among human beings who have some concept or some religion, it's still, it's a very gross platform. There's not really an awareness of universal law. So, of course, the animals are forced to obey whatever the conditions of their bodies are. The cows can't eat meat and the tigers aren't going to eat grass and so forth. But even among the human beings who are in the mo- mostly in the mode of ignorance, they're not really aware of universal law. They're mentality is, let me just get whatever I want from my body and mind in the most convenient and and easy way. Not in terms of being efficient, but just in terms of, I don't want to do any kind of sacrifice. And they don't, such persons in the mode of ignorance, they don't consider the repercussions of what they're doing, either for themselves or for others. Uh, a good example of this, of course, is meat-eating or intoxication, you know, let me just get something right now, and whatever the repercussions are, well, you know, whatever. I'd say all four regulative principles are in that category. You know, let me just have whatever kind of sex I want to have, and whatever disease or social harm or personal harm, who cares? You know, I'm enjoying in this moment uh, through my senses. And in the mode of ignorance, one sees the world as a very aggressive place. One sees really things in terms of friends and enemies and friends and enemies in terms of who is and who is not facilitating getting what I want right now. Such a person is not, their happiness is not really joy. Their happiness is a sense of, uh, first of all, it's, it's very gross on the physical platform. And it's a sense that I'm a, <coughs> a clever person. Then the mode of passion, there's some understanding of universal law. In the mode of passion, there's some sense that there's some order to the universe. There's right and wrong, and if I act in the right way, I'm more likely to enjoy. The focus in the mode of passion is still very much on the body and the mind. There's not really a focus in the mode of passion on the self. But there is a concept of sacrifice. There is a concept of, of God, generally, some higher authority that I have to work in harmony with. There's a real sense of pride as to the fact that I'm a good person. So I, I'm a good person because I want to show that off to others, and I'm, I'm very proud, I'm very self-righteous about the things I'm doing that are good. And whereas the person in the mode of ignorance is really satisfied with immediate basic sense gratification, the person in the mode of passion always wants to expand, expand, expand. Uh, there's greed, of course, in the mode of, of ignorance also, but it's it's not so expansive. In the mode of passion, it's very expensive. You think about the, the king. Raja means both a king and passion. The king who wants to conquer 
the rest of the world and expand his kingdom and, and so forth, uh, ostensibly to do good, to help others, to serve others, and to be a very famous person in the world, to have their statue in the park. You know, like Jarasandhar, Krishna says to Jarasandhar, well, if you're, if you're killed in the duel, then you'll be famous forever after your death. And, and this is really a mood of the mode of passion. I mean, who cares when you're dead and you move on to your next body? Who cares that you're famous for what you did in your last life? You're not even aware of it. But this is very much the mood of the mode of passion. More, bigger, more, bigger, more, bigger, and, and everybody look at me and, and look at how wonderful I, I am. Uh, but such people do get sense gratification through legitimate means. And then the mode of goodness, uh, which Prabhupada talks about here as being the highest mode. In this mode of nature, one's happiness is much more mental than physical. One is much more interested in inner happiness. And one is not interested in the happiness of the views of others, like one is in the mode of passion. But rather, one's feeling of balance and harmony and happiness within. When somebody says, I do the right thing because it makes me feel good inside to do the right thing, that's very much the mode of goodness. If I do the right thing so others will notice, and so I'll get good karma, that's in the mode of passion. And if I do the right thing for my own sense of inner harmony, that's in the mode of goodness. And the highest level of the mode of goodness is when I do the right thing so that I'll become liberated, so that I'll attain some sort of spiritual perfection. Uh, but although those in the mode of goodness are still wanting to control the material world and be the lords of the material world, they want to be the lords and masters through harmony and balance with the world for the sake of happiness. And so therefore, people in the mode of goodness do taste something uh, which we could call happiness. If there is any material happiness, it's experienced by those in the mode of goodness. The, mode, the people in the mode of passion get some sense pleasure because it's legitimate uh, from time to time. But the only thing that we could really call happiness, and even that is not ultimate happiness, but the only thing we could really call material happiness is in this mode of goodness. So in the mode of goodness, one, one's ahankara, one's sense of separateness from the Lord is, I am in balance, I am in harmony. It's still very much I, you know, I am forgiving, I am caring, I am doing the right thing. So why are we under these modes of material nature? We're under these modes of material nature, just like the original creation of the modes was this ahankara touching the pradhan in a great cosmic sense. So each of us is individually under these modes of material nature because we have individually accepted this ahankara, this false ego of I am the center and I am the Lord and I want to be the enjoyer. And in order to experience that, we have to be under a kind of illusion. You know, it, it's something like a, some sort of an intoxicant. If, if you want to think you're more powerful than you are or whatever, then you take some intoxicant that gives you an illusion that you're more powerful than you are. I, I remember when we lived in New York, when we'd walked to the temple from Mangalartik, uh, the city was, they say the city never sleeps, but at that time of the day, the city is pretty much sleeping. There's just the sex workers walking home and the intoxicated people walking home. And these intoxicated people, they're often singing very loudly on the streets, and they don't generally sing very nicely, but they're singing very loudly. And the intoxicant allows them to imagine that they're singing very nicely. So it's something like that, that we want to imagine that we're God. And because we want to imagine that we're God, we're, we take an intoxicant 
that gives us this illusion that we're God. So then we think, oh yes, yes, I am God. I am always right. I am always perfect. Everything I do is very powerful. And we're under these modes of material nature because without being under the modes of material nature, we can't have that illusion. It would be impossible. We just wouldn't be able to do it. We could think of these modes as degrees of covering. So the mode of goodness is a very light covering. It's kind of like having a glass window where you can you can see, but you're not really outside. And the mode of passion is more like having a translucent window. You can see some light, but you can't really make things out. And the mode of ignorance is kind of like having a room-darkening shade where you really can't see anything. So we're covered by these modes according to the degree to which we do not want to see the truth. So when I say to Krishna, I don't want to see the truth, I, I want to be in a world of my own imagination. Uh, I, I'm tired of, of this idea that you are the center. I want to imagine that I'm the center. So according to the degree of our desire for that, there's degrees of covering. And of course, it's, they're very mixed. And we may have a degree, uh, covering of goodness for some aspects of our life and a covering of ignorance over other aspects of our life. And then we get a particular body and a particular mind which is really made up of a particular combination of these modes according to our particular desires. And that's what accounts for all of the varieties of life. So all the varieties of life on a very gross level in terms of are you a pigeon, are you an eagle, are you a tiger, are you a human, are you a demigod, etc. And then within those, there's other categories, you know, among the demigods, there's the rishis, there's the prajapatis, there's the controlling devas, the gandharvas, the apsaras. Among the human beings, there are said to be 400,000 species of human beings, not all of which are available on this planet. But on this planet, we also see that there are groups. Uh, people can be grouped into various categories, and these different categories of people have different uh, abilities and different tastes and then there are human beings who are tribals right we have like the the pygmies who only live to be 30 years old and they are having children when they're eight and they don't have much of a language they don't have much of a civilization but they're human so all these different varieties of bodies are different combinations of covering of the modes and each of us individually you know, each individual pygmy, each individual demigod, each has their own individual covering of the modes in terms of how exactly we want to be illusion. You know, it's, it's kind of like you get your own custom-made uh, intoxicant, your own custom-made covering, depending on your desires. So if we transcend the modes of material nature, it's quite interesting. The symptoms of transcendence is something that Arjuna asked quite a few times in the Bhagavad Gita. He asked in the second chapter, he said, you know, somebody who's in this platform, how do they speak? What is their language? How do they sit? What, how do they walk? And then again in the 14th chapter, again, Arjuna says, what are the symptoms of those who have transcended the modes of material nature? So the symptoms are primarily a neutrality and an equilibrium towards everything in this world. One no longer sees the things in this world as good or bad. Because again, if we go back to the very beginning, the reason that we're under the modes of material nature is we want to be the enjoyers of the world, and the modes give us a certain filter 
through which we see things as enjoyable or not. And Prabhupada always gives the example of the pig who sees, you know, stool, feces as enjoyable and sees halva as not enjoyable, whereas a human being has exactly the opposite feeling. So what are your sense objects? You know, your, what are your sense objects depends on the particular covering of the modes of material nature. And how you're covered, you'll say, oh, this is very good. I like this. This pleases me. I don't like this. This doesn't please me. And there's general sense objects for each group of bodies. And then there's individual sense. You know, one person likes tomatoes and one person doesn't. And, and this is according to how we're covered by the modes of material nature. So when you're free of the modes of material nature, you're free of this at- attachment and aversion. You no longer see anything in the world as desirable for your enjoyment or as uh, averse to your enjoyment. You, you, you just you don't see things like that because you're not in the world to enjoy it. You know, it, it's like uh, in many airports, in order to get out of the airport particularly, you have to walk through the duty-free shop. So there's many airports like that, that when you're walking from the plane to the outside of the airport, they have a duty-free shop that's surrounding you. you. You have no choice except to walk through the shop. But if you don't have an interest in purchasing anything, then nothing in the shop either attracts or repulses you. You're, you're just neutral. You're not thinking of enjoying it. So you just, you just don't, you don't look at it and say, here's an attractive sense object, nor do you look at it and say, well, this is a repulsive sense object. You simply do not see the things in the shop as sense objects. Now, why? Because you're fixed on your destination. We'll get to that in a moment. So this is the symptoms of transcendence, is you don't see the world as good or bad in terms of your sense gratification at all. You're just neutral. And this is, again, it's repeated just throughout the Bhagavad Gita. You see... Uh, pebble, stone, and gold as the same, Krishna says in the sixth chapter. And then he says those who are even further advanced, they, they see friends, enemies, and the neutral parties also equally. Because when you're under the modes, a friend is someone who helps you get your sense objects, an enemy is someone who prevents you from getting your sense objects. And neutral are people who neither help or prevent you. But if you don't have any sense objects, then there's no meaning to friends, enemies, and neutral. It, it, it's It's irrelevant. So you're simply kind to everybody. I mean, obviously, you may, you're going to treat people differently in a practical sense, but your inner heart doesn't feel, oh, these are my friends or these are my enemies. I mean, you don't distinguish. We talk a lot in human society about not being racist, not being sexist. You're not even specious. Vidya vinaya sampane brahmani gavi hastani suni pandita samadarshina. You don't even see a difference between species. You don't see that, oh, this is a tree, this is a dog, this is an elephant. You see everybody is a soul that happens to have these particular desires, these particular bodies. It's like seeing people dressed up in costumes. You don't really think, well, here's a ghost, here's a donkey. These are all people who happen to be wearing particular costumes for some temporary purpose. So you become very neutral, and it's, it's fascinating, I, I think it's fascinating that in the 14th chapter, when Krishna describes the symptoms of one who's transcended the modes, he says, one who does not hate illumination, attachment, or delusion when they appear, 
nor long for them when they disappear, who is neutral, knowing that the modes alone are active. And Srila Prabhupada explains in that purport that as long as we have a body and mind, that body and mind is going to be under the modes of material nature. Our body and mind are products of the modes of material nature. They are a certain combination of the modes of material nature. Uh, But the devotee who is transcendent is neutral. Just saying, oh, there's the modes. This concept of the rivers flowing into the ocean, which is uh, always being filled and yet is still. Who uh, does not desire sense gratification, although the desires are present within the body and the mind. So transcending the modes of material nature does not mean that the body and the mind are no longer affected by the modes of nature. It does not mean that material attraction and repulsion is not felt by the body and the mind. It doesn't mean that at all. There will still be desires and feelings of attraction and repulsion in the body and the mind for those who are jivan mukta. However, one doesn't identify with them. One's not affected by them, one doesn't identify with them, one doesn't act on them. It's not that there is repression, it's not that there is suppression, there is simply disinterest. It's, it's, uh, and you could say there's a kind of, uh, there's a kind of repulsion, although not, uh, how would we say, not the kind of repulsion that someone under the modes feels for a sense object that's not their sense object. But there's a kind of repulsion in the sense that this whole idea of attraction and repulsion is an impediment to my relationship with Krishna, therefore I don't want it. So that's considered the ghastly rasa for the devotee, that one looks at this attraction and aversion, both, and feels a kind of disgust at it. I don't, I don't want to be an enjoyer of the world. It, I don't want to be a false sense enjoyer. I don't want to be an illusion. Uh, the, the same way we may look at an intoxicated person and feel repulsion. And the person in the state of intoxication is thinking they're being very clever and they're a very wonderful singer, but the person listening to them singing is disgusted. So it's kind of like that, that... Therefore, the desires just uh, come and go, like the rivers flowing into the ocean. One is not affected. Now, that's, we could say, on a negative platform, on a positive platform, one is living in truth. I mean, even in sattvagun, even in the mode of goodness, what to speak of in transcendence, one sees things as they are, which I think is something that is very desirable. People ask all the time. I mean, even people in the mode of ignorance, they ask all the time, what should I do? When I was recently in New York City, I don't know, there were so many, uh, I think also in, in Indonesia, I saw this in Indonesia and in New York City, so many fortune tellers, you know, palm readers, astrologers, etc., that had their signs up on the road. And people want to know, what choices should I make? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I get married at all? What job should I do? What will bring me the most happiness? But when you're covered, how can you see? So one of the 
uh, symptoms of transcendence is that you see the truth. You're living in truth. You know, in goodness, you can see the truth through your glass window, but you're not really living in it. But when you're transcending the modes of material nature, you're living in truth. Prabhupada says, your duty is self-illuminated by the grace of the Lord. I mean, this is... There's a devotee been recently asking me a lot of questions about Prabhupada's statements about race and gender. And I asked him... You know, why do you want to understand this? He says, because I want to know the truth. So if we want to know the truth, we have to transcend the modes of material nature. It's only when we're free of them that we're free of all coverings and we can see and be in the truth. And only in that position also, Prabhupada says, can we also be not affected by the material miseries. It's interesting, Prabhupada says, if such a devotee is not affected by material strength, intelligence, or even renunciation. So one is not affected by strength. In other words, if your body is strong, if your body is weak, if your mind is intelligent, if your mind is foolish, if you're in a position of renunciation, if you're in a position of opulence, none of those affect you. Nothing there's, as Krishna says in the sixth chapter, one is unaffected by all miseries. This is actual freedom from all miseries arising from material contact. One is no longer suffering. Like Buddha said, pain is inevitable, suffering is a choice. One is no longer suffering. And one can not only see the truth in terms of how to, you know, deal in the world, but one can see God. One can see Krishna, and one can enter, as Prabhupada says here at the end, one can enter into a loving relationship with Krishna, which is not really possible when we're covered by the modes of material nature. Because in the modes of material nature, we can't even understand him. We can't see truth, what to speak of, relate to him. So how do we transcend the modes of material nature? Well, there's, there's many techniques for transcending the modes of material nature. One is called karma yoga, where one acts in the modes, but karma palatyaga, renouncing the fruits, one does one duty in Varnashram, which is in the modes of material nature, but for the sake of liberation. Then there's Gyan Yoga, where one philosophizes, what are the modes of material nature, how are they entangling me, what is the truth, and in this way, one transcends the modes of nature. There's the process of Gyan Yoga, which can only be accomplished by somebody who's already proficient in Karma Yoga or Gyan Yoga whereby changing, by, by living a pious life, not hurting anyone, not engaging in envy and so forth, by putting the body in various postures and breathing in a particular way and focusing the mind on the Lord of the heart, that one puts the, oneself into a transcendental position. And then there's bhakti yoga, which immediately gets to the root of the whole thing, which is saying instead of, I am the Lord of everything. I am the servant of the Lord of everything. I am the, the servant, and Krishna is the master to get rid of the false ego, which started the whole process, and come back to our real ego. And one who does this, this Prabhupada's quoting here from Bhaktivasamrita Sindhu, uh, Karmana Manasagira. So actions, minds, and speech. Or as Krishna says in the 14th chapter, um, that if we are always engaged in our real position, if we're always engaged in serving Krishna, 
not only externally, right? We talked about the people who do God's work externally, not just externally with Karmana, but also with Manasa and Gira, with our speech and uh, with our mind, most importantly, with the mind. Because if you just serve God with your Karmana and your Gira, with your actions and your words, and not with your mind, then you get back in this category of the people who do the work of God in the world superficially and end up having their evil revealed and fall from their position. Uh, and they're not really in harmony with the Lord. So to be in harmony with the Lord, one has to change one's mentality, one has to change one's motives. And that, of course, is the process of bhakti. Now, Uddhava has this qualification, but he has beyond this qualification, really. Um, <coughs> I'm reading Gopal Champu by Jiva Goswami, and uh, it was really interesting when I saw the verse for today, because I thought, oh, well, I'm just reading about this in Gopal Champu, where Krishna decides to send Uddhava, not only like we're talking about here in the Bhagavatam, that Uddhava is going to be Krishna's representative in the world for the sake of teaching bhakti yoga, but Krishna also had Uddhava be his representative to go to Vrindavan to console the residents of Vrindavan in Krishna's absence. So it's a much higher level, a much uh, higher, deeper, sweeter level of being Krishna's representative. You know, what we're talking about here in the third canto Bhagavatam, again, is being Krishna's representative as a general preacher in the world for the fallen souls, but Krishna also, in his absence, or apparent absence, from Vrindavan, when Krishna's in Mathura, he wants uh, Uddhava to be his representative, not to help the fallen souls, but to console the most elevated souls. And of course, Krishna had another purpose there, that he also wanted Uddhava to become deeper and sweeter in his own bhakti. So anyway, we're going to read this little, very small section from Gopal Champu. So... Uh, this is Krishna Balaram talking to Rohini. You know, Rohini is an interesting member of Mathura and Dwarka because she's also a resident of Vrindavan. So, um, Rohini says to Krishna Balaram, oh, oh, first they asked her. They say, if we secretly go to, Vrinda, to Vraja and come back, Vasudeva and Devaki will not notice. And Rohini says, I have thought of this, and they have also thought about this. I do not see a pleasing conclusion. Their attendants are also opposed to this. Talking in this manner and seeing the suffering faces of Yasoda and others in meditation, all three, this Rohini, Balaram, and Krishna, began weeping. Then they decided that they must quickly engage a a knowledgeable, astute person to send a message to Vraja. After meeting and deciding this, Krishna, enemy of the demons, began thinking. I must send to Vraja someone who is most wise and is respected by the people of Mathura and Vraja, but he should not hide anything from me. The messenger who understands my sweetness and majesty will be able to pacify Vraja. If he only understands my sweetness, he will be burdened by grieving for their intense grief. If he only understands my majesty, he will consider their absorption in my sweetness to be improper behavior. If he has mere knowledge of sweetness and majesty, it will be of little use. There will be no fault-finding or censure if he realizes that I am in all cases dependent on prema. Thinking who would be the best person for this task in Mathura, he suddenly remembered, ah, like forgetting a Chintamani jewel worn on the neck 
when desiring some rare object, I have been dull-minded because Uddhava is a suitable person who will cause me bliss. Uddhava, who realized something of my childhood pastimes in worshipping me during his childhood, and who developed sickness in hiding his prema from me during his Kaishora age, is here with me. I constantly desire the association of Uddhava, who studied, studied under Brihaspati, the authorized scriptures on conduct starting from Bhagavatam, in order to disseminate the rules on how to serve me, who experiences the whirling nature of prema for me, and who is most suitable to be my minister. Oh, whenever I hear his name, he appears before my vision like a well-known person. Now I am seeing him. He is different from the Yadus and different from Balaram. I inquire from him on all topics at all time. My soul is present externally as Uddhava. My mind and his mind operate in the same way and not otherwise. He must be sent to deliver the message of, to the people of Raja who are endowed with all types of prema and who take me alone as their goal and who possess Rati with no restrictions. After thinking in this way, though it was difficult to find a solitary place, because of the continual movements of friends related to many topics, he found a private place and met Uddhava, who produces joy. He brought him to an attractive house and sat him down while his heart flowed like water. Sitting him down and becoming intimate, he took Uddhava's hand in his. So this is what we want. Of course, we all have our individual relationships with Krishna, uh, but we want that Krishna sees our particular good qualities, not just in general that we've transcended the modes of material nature, but here Krishna is looking for somebody very specific. He's looking, here's, I want someone who, who knows my majesty and my sweetness, and I want someone who's one with my heart. So each of us has our particular, in, our, in this life, in, with this body, in this mind, this culture we have, whatever, we have our particular opulences, uh, our particular, as Prabhupada says, extraordinary talents, and in our original spiritual form, we have our particular glories. And what we really want, our ultimate purpose for understanding the modes of material nature and transcending them, is not just equanimity, and it's not just freedom from material miseries, and it's not just to see the truth, it's not even just to be a pure representative of the Lord in this world, frankly. Uh, but it is so that Krishna can engage us in the way that is perfect for us, that we are clear, we are open, we are, we are free, we have no other motive. He can trust us, and he can ask us to do for him what is exactly perfect for us, that he can, which is what we all ultimately want. We all ultimately want to be fully and completely ourselves uh, for a greater purpose. So that is exactly what we can do once we transcend the modes of material nature. So this is what we need to be asking ourselves. Am I being influenced by the modes or am I being influenced by love? You know, am I, am I acting according to the modes of this body and mind or am I seeing them neutrally? and acting according to the desires of the Lord. So, questions, comments, etc. Absolutely brilliant class. Thank you so much. I really feel like I missed missed your classes very much. Now, it um, when you were speaking about... Um, you know the 
the modes, how we transcend the modes and how the devotee on a transcendental platform, how he acts. It reminded me that recently I was, I found on internet about Gopi uh, Pradhanadana when he died, um, when he passed away. Um, Shruti Kirti Prabhu, he went to his room and I read Shruti Kirti's article actually. You probably know that. And he said that Shruti Kirti found on Gopi Pranadana's Prabhu's wall um, the verse that was uh, in a frame hanging on his wall. And so he posted it, and the verse is um, without a reference. I don't know where is the verse coming from, but it sounds like it says. Do not hear from the mouth of a person lacking proper conduct. If your conduct is below par, you should not publicly preach about the Lord. Close the door and preach to yourself. Bhajan really begins when one's outside and inside are the same. Um, I wanted to ask you this, um, how to solve this uh, thing, how to reconcile this think that it's very often comes up also a hearing in many sannyasis lectures too about uh, giving classes or preaching you know um, uh, you have to be on a certain level so but we also understand that preaching is so important and uh, Prabhupada encouraged everybody to, to preach could you please give some feedback So, our process of purification is to speak about Krishna. That is how we ourselves are becoming purified, as it says, karmana manasa gira. So, gira is speech. So, we are being asked to speak about Krishna. Now, of course, we should speak according to our level of realization and according to the audience. And what I understand this to mean is don't speak above your level of realization. And don't speak, and a secondary note, which you didn't really touch on there, is is not to speak uh, improperly to the audience, to have time, place, and circumstance. So Prabhupada was very happy with three-year-old Sarasvati, who would go up to strangers and say, do you know who Krishna is? And they'd say no, and she'd say, well, he's the Supreme Personality of Godhead. So if that's all you know, then that's all you say. You know, but one be careful that one doesn't speak above one's level of realization. And that brings us to the proper level of conduct. Then we could also say that one should be very careful that in general that our position of preachers is in line with our internal conduct. I see this as a warning to avoid what I was talking about in the very beginning of the class, that one can be a representative of God in one sense and have the power of God in one sense, just externally. You can do that. It is entirely possible. It happens all the time. Well, as I said, most of the demigods are in that category, and truthfully speaking, most of the preachers of religion on the earth are also in that category, regardless of religious affiliation. So I think that quote you're referring to is, don't be like that. Don't, don't be a preacher of God with, with 
power of God without actually changing your heart. You know, it, it's that's not what we're looking for. That's not what we want. We don't want to be a Sakama devotee. We want to become purified. So if you're preaching about Krishna for the purpose of purifying your heart and getting closer to Krishna, that's fine. If you're preaching about Krishna because you want to be the representative of God and you want honor and prestige in the world and, you know, be quiet and go home and take care of your inner stuff before you go out again. Is that all right? Okay. And that's that, um, like when there's uh, um, other qualified speakers, then if you know that you're not qualified, uh, you should definitely not um, speak. Do you know what I mean? Well, I would say that if you only let the most qualified people speak, then nobody else gets a chance to learn how to preach, and other people don't get the benefit of preaching. So Prabhupada would sometimes listen to his disciples give classes. It's the, that's the duty it's in an ordinary school, you know, the teacher has the students stand up at the front of the room and give a presentation. It's not that the teacher does all the talking. Any qualified teacher also has the students make presentations as part of their training. So I think it's, it's very damaging and dangerous if only the most qualified people are preaching. At the same time, we don't want to jump over the head so if there's a more qualified person we should only teach it with their instruction and their permission and their blessings not that we push our way forward over those who are more qualified keep in mind that the devotee always feels that everyone else is more qualified than they are and the more qualified you are the more you feel that way just like when Prabhupada was talking about different classes of people and the reporter said, so you must be first class. And Prabhupada said, no, I'm fifth class because I'm serving even fourth class people. So this is the mood of a devotee. So you have this kind of catch-22. If you say you should only let more qualified people than you preach, the more qualified you are, the less you're ever going to say anything. So I don't think you want to have that as, as some sort of an absolute rule but as a principle that I don't, I don't out of pride push my way and push aside people who are more qualified. Uh, how a teacher, yeah, she engages the student. That, that's very good. Um, Sometimes um, there's a situation, say for example, Sunday Peace Program, it seems in cases like that, as much as possible, you want to have, uh, there, there must be some standard, not just Sunday Peace, but I guess in all of our classes, there's got to be some standard to speak, not just in terms of expertise and 
presenting the philosophy, but to the degree in which one is is following. I find it, quite frankly, I'm, I'm enthusiastic to hear pretty much anyone speak that is, that is following and is speaking sincerely from their heart. But it, I find it difficult or not so enthusiastic to go and hear someone speak who I know isn't chanting their 16 rounds or isn't strictly following the four regular principles. And how can they preach about the importance of the holy name or the importance of, of this process in general, disentangling ourselves from the material world, if, if there isn't even the realization of how dangerous this material world is and one actually isn't following the process. It doesn't seem such a person would be ordinarily empowered. There's the quote of uh, Balabacharya, Krishna Shakti Vinana Hitara Pravartana, that uh, Krishna Shakti Vinana, without, without being empowered by Krishna, then one, isn't, one is not able to, to speak with potency. Oh, well, this is why also, I mean, we can encourage anybody, Hare Krishna, we can encourage anybody to preach about Krishna according to their realization, uh, but when we're going to have somebody representing the International Society for Krishna Consciousness. You know, if you're going to be officially representing the organization and you're going to be sitting on the Vyasasan and so forth, then we should have this certain minimal standard. Generally, we ask not only that people are following the regular principles and chanting 16 rounds, but that they're initiated and, and that they've studied the books and so forth. But as far as general preaching about Krishna, I mean, anybody can go to their... Uh, workplace or their family or their friends and say chant Hare Krishna even if that person is only chanting one round a day and only following one regulative principle I mean we, we don't say that first you have to become completely following before you can open your mouth and in fact telling people about Krishna is part of the way that you're going to be enthused yourself to follow so it's it's certainly true, but you know, empowerment is not an on-off switch. It's not that either you're empowered or you're not. You're empowered to the degree to which you're following. But certainly, I mean, Srila Prabhupada would not at all be pleased if we had people officially representing his society and so forth who were not even following the basic rules that he gave us. I mean, that's uh, that's not proper by any standard but as far as in general anybody can preach about Krishna according to their level of realization and, and knowledge the, we, we, you know, we don't require uh, anything for that so that's, that's open to everybody and as I said by, by talking about Krishna one will themselves be more inspired to follow. Again, just like Prabhupada said, the person drinking wine can think of how Krishna is a taste of his wine. Why couldn't he turn to the other wine drinker next to her, him or her and say, you know, Krishna is a taste of my wine, if that's their level of realization. 
but you don't have put such a person on the Vyasasan in a temple and have them preach about Bhagavad Gita. So this is there's a general principle that each of us can speak according to our realization and that speaking helps us to advance. And then there's the specific situation of representing the parampara, representing an institution and so forth, that there's a certain minimum level of, of following that's required. Is that all right? I think we, we, we could take one more and then we should stop. Oh, those two just went out. <laughs> I muted them because they're making noise and they just dropped. Oh, boy. Uh, Balabhadra, did you want to say something? Or should we just read it here? No, they're Sorry. still here. Mukunda is still here. Oh, Mukunda is here. Really? Let's yeah, see. Yeah, Narabhad is still here. All right. I'm sorry, Prabhu, I had to mute you. Let's see. Uh, i got to find their names. No, I hear you. Okay, I unmuted I'm you. I'm you. No, I, I very much appreciated um, and then Dharma's comment. I was, I was, I was referring specifically to those that are accepting the, the position of officially representing ISKCON. Uh, you're sitting on the Yasasan, etc. And yes, it's, it's absolutely a fact that everyone can and should reach according to a realization. There's so many Shastra examples. Just like when then he also became very much benefited afterwards. And there's many examples of all the different gurus that we hear from sometimes, not even human, but the various animals we're learning from as well. Mukunda Prabhu, did you want to say something? I unmuted you now. I'm sorry, there's just too much noise. I had to mute you. But go ahead. Oh no, I, was, I, I, I had one small uh, question or sort of query that especially in relation to the demigods like in Bhakti Rasam Sindhu actually uh, in the category of Dasya Bhaktas, Arikrita Dasya Bhaktas they're called and you have the exceptional cases of like Durvasha Muni whose situation is very unique because he's a special kind of Incarnation. I mean, his very name, Durvat, means in. Difficult, but at the same time, he's of Lila offering to Radhika that what she cooks will be uh, like nectar and will make a long life. So his situation is pretty unique. So I always had the question is it. That the demigod, uh, the, the reference to being um, very materialistic, forth, be more related to the residents who live on. Uh, because most we see that happens to them is in Bhagavatam some relation to a leader of some sort. So maybe the influence of Mahamaya in many cases, rather than mundane lust or etc. etc. So I, I, things like that, but, you know, of course, that could be seen differently. Did you make that out? I know it was broken up. Another yeah, no, I, I, I could get most of it. I, I think it's very individual, and again, Krishna consciousness is not an on-off switch. 
it's not that either you're Krishna conscious or you're not Krishna conscious. It's not like that. It's, as Prabhupada says, gradual and progressive. As Chakravani Thakur talks about the gradual change between uh, self-consciousness and Krishna consciousness. So anybody who's in bhakti has, you know, they're, they're somewhere on that path. And it's entirely possible to be at a place at that path where you still are some degree under the modes of material nature, but you may be to some degree participating also in Leela. I mean, even when Krishna appeared on the earth, some of the people who were participating in his Leela were his eternal associates who came with him. Some of them were sadhana siddha bhaktas who were getting their their training and some of them were very peripheral you know you have some of the people in uh, I think it's Jiva Goswami in his commentary in Ujjwala Nilamani who talks about some of the wives of the Kurus and the wives of the Purus who after seeing Krishna in Mathura desired the position of being Krishna's queens which they'd have to then get in another life so they were participating in Krishna's Leela in the sense that they're there and they're, they're seeing Krishna and they may be talking to different persons and so forth, but they're not yet fully in their swarup. They're not fully in their position yet. They're, and they, if you take even the, I, I hate to say ordinary, I don't know what to, how to put it. If you take the, the sadhaka under Lord Chaitanya's guidance, so we do Vaidhi Sadhana, and then at a certain point we start to awaken and do Raganuga Sadhana. And when a person is doing Raganuga Sadhana, at least in meditation, they're entering into Krishna's Leela. Although, like Prabhupada says, Nista is when you're 50% free of the modes of material nature. So to some degree, you're free of the modes of material nature, and to some degree, you're participating in the Leela. And it's all the acharyas say that we enter into the lila in the same way that we meditate in this life. So it's not that it's not real. And Prabhupada says you meditate like that, even though you're imagining. He says it is not false; it is real. At, at the same time, the person is under the modes of material nature. Our our way of getting free of the modes of material nature is meditating on Krishna's name, form, qualities, and pastimes. That's our process of becoming free. That means we have some mix at each stage in bhakti of to what extent we're meditating on Krishna's name, form, qualities, and pastimes and to what extent we're under the modes of material nature. So whether you're a human, whether you're a demigod, whether you're a sage, that's going to apply. Now you do reach a point at prema bhakti where there's absolutely zero influence of the modes of material nature, where you're totally transcendent to the modes of material nature. And you have a point at Adushrata where there's only a slight trace of, of reality and everything else is in darkness. But there's, it, it's degrees. And this is very true of ourselves. This is very true of all the devotees that we deal with. And this is very true of the demigods. That, you know, to what, to what degree is one free and to what degree is one covered. It, it's like you know, if you're sick. So a couple weeks ago I was extremely sick and I got well slowly. It wasn't that I was very sick 
you know, at 7.01 and at 7.02 I was completely healthy. Or the sun rising in the morning or waking up in the morning. Now there are some times when a person comes to total transcendence instantly. I was just yesterday hearing that Prabhupada was saying, you can come to full Krishna consciousness instantly. That's possible. Just like you can go from sleep to fully awake and alert instantly. And sometimes a person is sick and they get some medicine and they're instantly cured. But generally, it, it's a gradual and proportional process. So thank you very much. Shri Prabhupada. Ki jai.